and it turned out he'd been, you know, uh, a serial murderer. I mean, he was a contract hitman and he'd butchered a family when he was a kid and, and he'd done some pretty horrific things. And it was chilling. And it was hard to, to put that against the same guy I'd been to a nightclub with and we'd been, you know, drinking a bucket of beer. It was quite a kind of nice guy. I realised, oh, God, you know, this is the guy I was hanging out with. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It's almost half a century since US President Richard Nixon declared his war on drugs. But with 35,000 murders in Mexico and 72,000 overdose deaths in the US since, few believe it to be anything but an abject failure. Journalist Yoan Grillo has covered the conflict in his adopted homeland of Mexico for more than two decades. He's met the cartel bosses, witnessed the massacres, and even drank beer with a brutal Sicario who specialises in beheading his victims. But after decades at the cold face of the narco wars, he sees failures on both sides of the border. And in his new book, Blood, Gun, Money, he details how an iron river of guns flows into Mexico from the US while the drugs pour back out. He tells me how after 50 years of misery, it's high time to leave Nixon's policy behind and for the US to tighten its own gun laws if it wants to ebb the tide of death. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So um, in 1971, uh, Richard Nixon gave this very famous speech where he called out the White House press corps and he said, uh, we're going to declare a war on public enemy number one, uh, drugs, uh, and then after that, the DEA was created, the Drug Enforcement Administration, which came into action in 1973. And he declared this war in very absolutist terms. So he talked uh, about this idea that, that heroin could be banished from American lives. Um, this problem of heroin, which you know, they were, which Americans were seeing then, and American. Uh, middle-class Americans were really experiencing with their children drug, you know, massive increase in people taking drugs. So he he said, um, we can we can get rid of this. It's something we can abolish from from American life. There will be no heroin. So let's just let's go and go after this. So the the DEA began this long campaign, which they realized, okay, we can't just go after the people selling heroin on the street corner. We need to go after their bosses and their bosses and back to the countries which make heroin and to the people who traffic heroin. And then we've seen 50 years of this long war on drugs play out. And last year in Mexico, 35,000 murders. And in the US, 72,000 people died from overdoses. Yes. So it's not been so successful. Everybody knows it's been a failure, don't they? I think your new book, which is more than a book in my mind, I think you've started to go into the realms of coming up with possible solutions and policies. You're sort of moving away from 
journalism, even though you've brought with you stories from the ground and stuff, but you're you're moving into a different level with your journalism in in blood gun money because you're looking at ways that are practical to stem this death in the US, these murders in, in Mexico. And as a result, a lot of things that even happen, that, that ri- the ripple effect comes over here to Ireland. Um, you know, you have taken your subject being guns. Guns are legal in the US. Massive gun lobby there that are, are fighting every step of the way to keep them as open as they are. And it's largely American weapons that are being used by the Mexican narco gangs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, the United States has the biggest legal gun retail market in the world by far. Uh, The last count found about 393 million guns in civilian hands in the United States, which is more than the next 25 countries combined. It's likely above 400 million now. Uh, And those guns from the legal market then move to the black market. They move to the black market inside the United States and they move internationally. So inside the United States, you see guns being trafficked to people who are not allowed to have guns, such as criminals with, as the the Americans say, felony offenses. People who have been done for serious crimes are not allowed to have guns, but they buy guns in the black market. So if you look at most of the gun homicides inside the United States, and in cities such as the, the real murder capitals like Baltimore, Maryland, most of them are carried out with illegal guns that have been trafficked there. Now, in Mexico, uh, where there is only one legal gun shop in the country run by the army, and you have to go in there with seven pieces of ID, there's this huge iron river of guns flowing from the United States market into Mexico. So we've seen in the last... 11 years, 164,000 guns that have been taken from criminals here in Mexico and traced directly to American gun shops or gun factories. But that's only the tip of the iceberg. The Mexican government believes that over a decade, the real number has been north of 2 million guns coming down. So you see then the guns coming and fueling the violence here But then you see this um, sad kind of paradox where in the United States, while it has the biggest drug market in the world, and they believe that Americans spend about $150 billion every year on illegal drugs, heroin, uh, cocaine, crystal meth, still marijuana where it's illegal, Um, spending that money on drugs, the biggest drug market in the world, the biggest amount of guns in the world, the US also has pretty hard law enforcement, which cracks down on organized crime. So they keep a certain lid on it. Now there's criticism. They've got the biggest prison population in the world, more than 2 million people in prison in the United States. They've got uh, high levels of police shootings, and you know, by far the highest, uh, you know, as we all know, and it's been talked about a lot in the last year, the highest number of police shootings in industrialized world. But they also do keep a certain check on organized crime. Whereas in Mexico, the institutions are much weaker and corrupt. And here, those guns create what is, you know, what I call a crime war, a hybrid between crime and war, where you've got no longer just regular gangsters fighting, 
but paramilitary groups. Uh, and I'm sure many people have seen the videos, seen the images of guys in combat gear with AK-47s and AR-15s and grenade launchers, um, overwhelming uh, parts of the country. And this this level of death that people have been living with for, for 12 years. And we hear so much about Mexico and every now and then we see some horrific images from there. Um, is it in pockets in Mexico? I mean, obviously there are the certain cartels, but um, for example, Mexico City, is it is it pretty cosmopolitan, I've heard, and uh, rich. There's obviously big divides between rich and poor. Is there is there key pockets of the country where these narcos rule? I look at this and, and the levels of the, the, the violence, and, and I would kind of divide the country into almost like three zones. And Mexico's a big country. It's, you know, 2 million uh, square kilometres, 130 million people. So you see like about a third of the states in Mexico with real serious narco cartel problems. You know, about a third of the country, even within those states, it depends. Some towns, some cities have have this presence much more, some less. But about a third of the states, we see serious level of cartel-related violence. And in the worst areas, I mean, or, or the most intense areas, you see open cartel control. I mean, you go to areas where you see guys in, in balaclavas and AK-47s riding around on quad bikes openly. Uh, then you've got about a third of the country where you have this cartel presence, but it's not in the same way. And Mexico City, uh, I'd include in that third, the state of Mexico as well. So you have cartels operating, but they're not openly around controlling territory in the same way. It's not the same level of violence. And Mexico City does have the same level of murders as some U.S. cities, not the worst U.S. cities, some U.S. cities. And then you have actually a, a part of parts of Mexico, another kind of third, which really doesn't have this problem so much. And that's places like Yucatan. Now, you, you know, so the, the, the difference within Mexico is so, is so vast because you have several cities which are among the most violent cities in the world, often hitting the top one, you know, like the first, second, third numbers of the most homicidal cities in the world. But then you have places like the state of Yucatan, uh, which is has a similar murder rate to Belgium. So suddenly these these kind of peaceful oases or parts of the country which don't have that problem. So there, yeah, there's, there's a real contrast there, which might be missed in some of the reporting. Um, you know, obviously, when we are reporting on these kind of crazy, insane incidents, that's not the whole of Mexico. That's certain places some of the time. But the, the problem is very real and very, very broad. I mean, the, the levels of violence are, uh, the effect on the population has been very, very bad. And back to the guns, you say that they are openly carrying them, dressed like militias. The narcos are pretty much running the territory. We heard during the beginning of the problem with COVID that they were delivering food packages to poor people. Uh, they were running curfews in some areas. I don't know whether that was in Mexico, but they were running curfews. And they were really showing themselves as almost the local government system in, in some places. And that's really, I presume, where they are at their most powerful. But everyone has guns. They all hold guns. They, I presume they're just like two a penny, the guns that they, the gangs have. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the gangsters, I mean, it's, it's very rare to see uh, cartel figures like killing with knives or something, 
you know, like you might get it, you know, that'd be like a real, like, that's a weird case. They they, they, they stab somebody, you know, that's, that's kind of one to look into. Um, you know, often the, the murders, and I've covered uh, over 20 years that I've been here in Mexico covering violence, I've uh, been to many, many scenes where they ambush the victims and will often use AK-47s and AR-15s, often converted to fully automatic. Now, these are guns which are taken into the United States. I mean, AK-47 is a Eastern European-made weapon, uh, and obviously from the, from the Soviet Union originally. A lot of them are made now in factories in Romania, uh, Bulgaria, other places. Imported into the United States, sold there, and then taken into Mexico. Now, in the United States, they're semi-automatic, so you're only going to be firing one shot with each pull of the trigger, but they'll convert them often. The gangs will convert them here to fully automatic. So I've been at these crime scenes where you'll there'll be a, a group of people, they might stop at a traffic lights and they just unleash 500 bullets in, you know. Now, fully automatic, they can fire about 10 bullets a second. So, you know, that's only 50 seconds with, you know, where, where, where there will be several guns firing at the same time. So you go like, brrr, and they'll be like, kill everybody in the vehicle. And then they might kill the woman in the car behind driving the guy on the side of the road selling tacos. So that's one of the reasons why many, many regular people, civilians, have been dying in this violence. About the kind of COVID handouts, I, I looked into some of that as well. Went to one place where they were handing out uh, COVID relief, the cartels. I went there after they'd done the handout, talked to uh, one of the families who had received it. And uh, I mean, it, it's that it's, in some ways it's a publicity stunt uh, and it's creating a base in certain communities. Most of the cartels or many of the cartels got into this uh, and they would videotape it and put it out on social media. Them handing out bags of goodies, flour, sugar, eggs, uh, basic household stuff for poor people. That's a big deal. And but it would only be it wouldn't be that big really. I mean, say Mexico's a big country, and, and even in these certain cities and towns, they might only hand out two hundred bags of goodies. But the way they put it out on video created a massive international global impact of like, oh, the cartels hand out COVID relief, and people kind of see them as oh, right, well they give they give and they have, they have kind of carrot and sticks, and they put up very specific bases in certain communities. So you go to certain towns certain neighbourhoods and the cartel there has got support. Now, when they give out COVID relief one day, then another day they come and say, we've got to stash some stuff, we've got to hide, we need stuff, then people often will give back. But the fact they're videoing it that themselves now is kind of akin to even ISIS when they were showing off how, you know, idyllic the caliphate was and, you know, they all these organized crime groups nowadays are using propaganda. They're using their own practically PR teams, aren't they, to show what they want the world to see. Um, they do show off their guns, of course, as well, and they gold plate them. And we hear all those various stories as well. But going back to the guns. So let's go back, bring it back to the US for a minute. So the gun lobby there, the NRA, is massively powerful lobby. And as you've pointed out, uh, in your book, there's particular loopholes that have been left in the purchase of, of guns and the, in the regulations that they have really anytime anyone suggests doing anything with the legislation, they'll jump on it and 
they want their freedoms to carry their weapons. But one particular loophole I think you discovered and you went to a gun show yourself to test it out was that while you need to produce papers and uh, identity and have a license, is that right, to buy from a dealer, you can privately buy a gun with no identity whatsoever. And that's in the US. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so when you get into US gun laws, American gun laws, um, you might a lot of people might have the impression, oh, the gun's illegal there, anyone can buy a gun. It's not quite as simple as that. Actually, there's a real complicated kind of mosaic of legislation. You have the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, but that's actually interpretation and discussion about that. What does that mean? Is it the right to to have any gun you want? Can you know? Can you buy a tank? Or, you know, or, or, or what level of gun can you have? Can a criminal buy a gun? Can somebody who's mentally ill buy a gun? So there's this discussion about exactly what that Second Amendment means. Then different states, different cities all have their own different regulations and laws. So, but you have this, this what was approved before these uh, certain restrictions, and these came in in 1968 uh, with the, um, the, the Gun Control Act then, which is you know, really part of the legislation, saying that, okay, criminals cannot buy guns. We decide that then. Mentally ill people cannot buy guns. And this was after some of these high-profile shootings, JFK, Martin Luther King, um, you know, various things happening back in the 60s. Also the Black Panthers going into the uh, state um, congress in, in, in California, Sacramento, California. So you have this and you have this form that's filled out at an instant background check. So if you go into buy a gun, they say, okay, we'll give you a check and we need to see some ID. And that's the basic rules for people buying guns in most places in the US. Now, when I, I went into a prison in Ciudad Juarez to interview a gun trafficker bringing the firearms into Mexico. And we interviewed a guy who'd been bringing in a very large amount of weapons over several years before he was caught by the military because his cousin grasped up on him. Otherwise, he said he would have still been doing it. And he would drive over the border from Ciudad Juarez to El Paso and then drive to Dallas, which is about a 10-hour drive, and go to gun shows there. And he would describe it. He would say, oh, there's a black market at the gun shows where you can buy with no ID. You you look around, you find someone to sell you no paperwork at all. Here's cash. Give me the guns. And he described it as a black market. So we, we did the drive from El Paso up to the gun show in the Dallas area in a town called Mesquite which is known as the gun show capital of America. By, that's what, that was what Breitbart News called it. And we went in there with the hidden recorders and tried buying and first of all found the people who said, no, you need ID. Then we found people who said, no, we're private sellers. So it's like I'm a private collector. It's like, you know, like I, it's like if I'm selling old records at a record fair, I don't need a, a license to sell records. I'm like a collector. But then some of these people had and, and these guys said we had it on tape. They said oh, these are brand new guns, unfired, and they had big piles in boxes, in like new boxes of AR-15s. But they said they're like private sellers, so they had this loophole which people then abusing. And what they can do, which is very cynical, is they can go to shops, buy buy new guns, or from a distributor buy new guns, and then sell them to people who can't buy guns legally. 
and make their money that way. So this guy we interviewed was driving every weekend, buying a dozen or so guns, mostly AR-15s, about $600, $700 a pop he'd buy them for in, in the US, sell them for over $2,000 in Mexico. So you can you can do the maths there. Uh, you know you know he can start he start making you know, big money buying himself a house, um, cars, uh, you know all of this. And his story, Owen, was interesting in the beginning because he didn't really intend to get involved in it. Sure, he didn't. He he wanted to kind of make an honest living, but couldn't. Y- yes, I mean like like a lot of these these things of of why people get into to crime. I mean, it's not always, uh, you know, purely you know, poverty. That's, 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 that's you know, because you get like, and there's people, I, you know, I, I profiled in the book as well, a, a, a guy who was a pilot uh, flying drugs and guns, and he was like an upper middle class Mexican guy who kind of got his pilot's license and then got into all this stuff. It's not always extreme poverty, uh, but in the case of this, of this guy, um, I profile um, smuggling guns. He was, he got, you know, his, his wife pregnant, very young. Um, he was working on building sites for the for the council, making uh, about uh, you know ten dollars a day or so. Um, you know, by the time you're buying milk um, and you know nappies and, and that kind of thing, you've got very little left. Um, and he had permission to go to the United States and would go there buy goods and sell them back home. And then because his town was very, very narco, gangster kind of town, he didn't want to get into that. He didn't want to, because he saw friends who got into it and they would get killed and be killing people and he didn't want to be into that kind of murder business. But the friend said, can you, you know, you're going into, you're going up to Dallas, can you go and buy me, um, buy me an AR-15? He said, okay, I'll go and get it for you. Found out how to do it. The guy gave him money and they said, oh, you know, go out there again, buy me, you know, this time buy me 10. Um, so that's how he kind of got into this. And, and the money was just too easy and too good. So suddenly he was like living this, you know, living it large, um, saying he had, you know, had his wife and he had other girlfriends, cars, motorbikes, you know, live, living it large for a couple of years. And then, we, you know, we talked to him in prison. So it didn't last that long. Um, and in that time, he sold a bunch of guns, which were used to kill a bunch of people. He's probably a classic example of somebody getting lured into the drug world, whether it was for necessity in the beginning and then turned to greed. But, uh, you know... I think there's this there's this time when I'm sure it's like trying drugs for the first time and after that they seem to chase the dragon with the money, with the lure of all the money and it always just ends up bad, doesn't it? I mean, I have yet to find people in the drug game that have come out of it unscathed, happy and, you know, looking forward to a retirement with just enough money they just don't seem to be able to walk away from it once they do go in, do they? Yeah, I mean, I mean, most, you know, a lot of these, you know, once you get into to working with a cartel, um, it doesn't come out with a good retirement package. No. Um, with a good, like, you know, like severance. There are people who, you know, try and break out and, you know, like, you know, you know obviously once you're involved and you know a lot of things, because then you know, you know, you know people, you know corruption, you know, you know faces, all of this kind of stuff then people don't necessarily want to let you go and say, oh, that, that guy's out now and he's just living a nice life. Now, there are people who who played his game better than others. Um, there are, you know, I've so been 20 years here, um, talked to many, many people in this business at all kinds of levels. And you do suddenly find people who are like living in these like middle-class houses, um, keeping more of a low profile, and people who are involved in moving drugs but are kind of doing this in a slightly smarter way. 
not living in a in a big mansion. I mean, so, so, like some of the big narcos. I mean, the classic stories about them living in these mansions with um, tigers and lions. Those are true. <laughs> there are people who are doing that. Um, I, I went recently to the, the place where the Mexican army has all the captured stuff they have, and they had a, a stuffed lion and tiger there they'd taken from a from some narco's mansion. They said they were probably used to be, like, eating the victims uh, of uh, of, the, of the cartel, or, you know, they had their stuff. So these things are true, and, and, and the, you know, the, the drug traffickers with, you know, a bunch of girlfriends with plastic surgery, who they're like, uh, they call them buchonas as a culture in these drug trafficking regions of these beauty queen girlfriends having this quite intense, crazy plastic surgery, breast enhancement, enhancement, really slim, wearing kind of fingernails with diamonds. And then, you know, all they kind of, you know, live in this kind of crazy party lifestyle. And then they're caught and then they're in prison and they're killed and so forth. That all happens, but there also are people who are doing this stuff a bit more under the radar, who are trying to keep their head down, live in middle-class houses, have that money moving around. So there are some people who are a bit smarter and have made this game work for them better. Uh, but there's plenty of people who have suffered, ended up suffering because of this. And all of that, it, it is becoming a culture. It's a, it's a lifestyle and it's a culture amongst that sort of narco thing and they have their own music and we see all the the young kids even here getting involved in in drug dealing and they're all over Instagram and they're all over, you know, no, sorry, not Facebook, but uh, they're TikToking. They're doing all this sort of stuff, showing off their clothes. And it is just, it's a lure, but it's a culture. It's it's almost a, a culture now and it's been really deeply ingrained. Um, tell me about your boy, Jelly Roll, whose name I think is most unfortunate considering he was a little bit tubby around the middle but um he's an interesting character you came across in Baltimore yeah sure so I went to Baltimore Maryland uh to research and I've been down here covering this stuff in Mexico for years uh but wanted to look at how how it was really working connecting to the United States and this is the same black market of guns I mean the black market of firearms the black market of drugs these are international things uh, so um, I, I went into Baltimore and, and, and met Jelly Roll uh, because he'd worked on TV productions. So I got contacted him through people who'd worked on TV stuff. He'd worked among things on the, the series The Wire itself. He did more security for TV sets. He also was a bouncer at nightclubs and uh, had this you know, security for, for rap artists, uh, for rappers there in, in Baltimore as well he'd done. So he was a big guy. I uh, say so he was he was he was tubby, but he was also strong, and, and, and uh, he played American football. And he he introduced me to uh, firearms traffickers in Baltimore, and also other people. A guy um, called Coleon, who 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 I, who I profiled, who was who was open talking on the record, who who'd been convicted of murder when he was fifteen, uh, been in prison, and now was come out and was doing these no these things called no shoot zones. Um, so Jelly Roll was somebody who, who who had been involved in the drug game in, in Baltimore, so he knew what was happening in terms of the guns coming into the city, the, the drug dealing there. And then, he, you know, he, he was making, when he was 17 years old, he was selling crack heroin on the corners in Baltimore. And he was making $3,500 a week doing that. 
So you go out on the street, sell drugs, $3,500. Then you go out clubbing, say with fake IDs back then. Um, they, take, they take it in turns for who will be buying. Um, you know, they buy everyone brand new clothes, brand new trainers um, to go out, buy bottles of champagne. Um, they, you know, these, these are 17-year-old kids, 16, you know, 17, 18-year-old 17, kids, and they'd be going out with girls who were like much older in their 20s. And uh, that was his lifestyle for a while. He ended up in prison, a uh, couple of stretches in prison. Um, he got shot, uh, survived uh, a shooting, a, a bullet very close to his heart. The doctor said if you hadn't been so, had that layers of, of, of belly fat. And, and he was somebody um, who was, was I got on very well with, and he was somebody who was, I'll say now, he introduced me to the, the, the gun traffickers and, and, and this guy, Chain, and... Uh, uh, and Bam, who who I, who who are profiled in the book, and and that was interesting when we went over there, and and they they agreed to talk to me first of all. Then when we arrived outside the house, um, they said, you know, they phoned up, said, no, we don't want to talk to the guy anymore. You know, don't, don't, don't like that. So listen, and I said, I said, I was like, I was like, you know, right there, we got all the way. I was like, right there, and then then I um, um, I said, look, let's just go in there and have a cup of coffee, and you know, just tell him I want to have a cup of coffee and have a chat. And he said, no, don't say that. We, you know, we're not really coffee people. We don't we don't drink coffee. <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't the thing. Um, but uh, but eventually we, we we got in there and I made the pitch. And you know, once I got got them chatting and they, they told me the stories and 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 he, he you know he, he talked through it okay. Um, another one of the characters I met there was one of the the Barksdale family. And when he first said we're going to go and meet. Mr. Barksdale, and I was like, you know, you're you're joking. I didn't know the Barksdales are the characters in the in the in the TV series The Wire. But then I realized they were real people. They'd used actually the name Barksdale, which is a real name of a drug dealing family in in Baltimore, and they used that name. Uh, and we met one of the Barksdales who was in this series um, called D'Angelo. His real name was Dante Barksdale. And he was talking about the series, now they killed him in the second series and all these different things. Um, he actually told me then he was writing, wanted to write a book about his life. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, if you need you know, need thing about, you know, we, we, you know, ideas. He tragically was shot dead um, about two weeks ago. Um, he was shot dead after his book was released. And, and I think, and I think uh, perhaps, you know, whatever, the idea that he was telling the story, seen as being a snitch, um, a grass, and, and he was shot dead. So that was that was some you know made some some big news. Dante Barksdale being being shot dead. Um, but uh, but Jenny Roll was somebody. One of the things that was interesting about him, I was talking to him about how he sees his life now, um, and, and and about how you know like the things that he's done which are bad and feeling guilt. And it's one of the kind of things I'm interested in talking to to gangsters how they process their guilt when they kill a bunch of people or when I do these things. And and, and Jennifer was saying he felt very guilty about all the heroin he'd sold. Now, it's funny, it didn't, that didn't, it actually kind of surprised me in a way because I didn't think that much about guilt about selling drugs. I thought guilt about when you go around and murder people and decapitate people and that kind of stuff. But in a way, selling drugs, you know, a lot of people, it's like you're selling a product. But he said he did feel guilt about that quite deeply about people who died from from that heroin, people who got sick from that heroin, and especially because a lot of it was people in his own community. 
So he said, like, he said a lot of drug dealers are like that. You know, you actually, when you when you kind of talk to them, they feel that. He's, he said to me, I haven't, I haven't said this before, but, yeah, you know, I feel bad about, about this. There's a sort of shared guilt about selling a product to willing customers, isn't there? And then, you know, murder is a, is a different thing altogether. What age was Jelly Roll? Because I find sometimes in their 40s, they start, people who've had a long career in the drug business do start considering life and where they're at and maybe what they've contributed to the world. Yeah, yeah, no, he's exactly, he's, he's, we're exactly the same age, in fact. He, uh, we're both in our, in our now in our, in our mid-40s, mid to late 40s. Yeah, and, yes, um, yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it, it's that, that age, people, people come through. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, like, talking about this guilt, I mean, when I, when I interviewed, when I, when I have interviewed a lot of the gangsters in Mexico, in Latin America, who have committed pretty horrific crimes, including things like decapitating people while they're still alive. And so there was this guy, Fresa, uh, who, who, who I also talk about in, in, in Blood Gun Money, who was a guy I, I knew. I mean, I met him a few times and, and hung out with him, went to nightclubs with him in, in Honduras. Before I finally got his story out, and, and it turned out he'd been, you know, uh, a serial murderer. I mean, he was a contract hitman and he'd butchered a family when he was a kid and, and he had done some pretty horrific things. And I think he felt guilt about it and he kind of repressed it as well in the idea of saying, well, I grew up, and he basically was abandoned as a kid and was like, I grew up really hard. I was like, I had it really bad. I had to do this stuff. I had no way out. But also did feel uh, a certain... I think guilt and you know, bad about what he'd done, and 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 I mean, he you know he described to me when they have contracts, and they would specifically want the person to be decapitated. That would be part of the contract. We want to, we want to have that person suffering. We want to, we want you to video the guy being decapitated, and he would describe how it was done. You know how the person would be like suddenly their face, what their face would be like when they realised it was going to happen, um, how they would react, kind of physically, how their body would move. How when even when the life went out of them, you'd see them kind of body twitching for 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 a second, like that was there was still that kind of nerves moving around. So you kind of describe this stuff, and it was and it was chilling, and it was chilling. I remember the camera we were filming that on video. The cameraman was saying he was physically feeling sick as he was describing this stuff, and it was hard to to put that against the same guy I'd been to a nightclub with and we'd been you know drinking a bucket of beer, um, and it was quite a kind of nice. Guy, I realized, oh God, you know, this is the guy I was hanging out with. Uh, but then that was the, 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 uh, the last time I saw him was in 2017. And then in, in late 2018, I got a phone call from, from a journalist friend who introduced me, who grew up basically with this guy, knew him from growing up. He said he'd been murdered. Fresser himself had been murdered. Um, and one of the kind of sad things about that is he grew up abandoned. He had two children, wanted Part of it was kind of this idea, I want to have, you know, give them this kind of middle-class lifestyle, which he was achieving through really horrific stuff he was doing. Then they ended up being orphans with a murdered dad. But I talked to him about guilt and about churches and religion and stuff, and he was like, a thing he said, um, you know, I, I don't know if there is forgiveness for people like me for the things I've done. So kind of feeling that feeling of being damned um, of damnation and it kind of was kind of getting into that kind of religious idea of, of how people can kind of process that I find interesting because part of this is a kind of failure of societies um, that people are doing this kind of stuff 
um, the kind of is a certain kind of failure of morality, I think, of, of why people are doing this stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. When you stand back and you look at how you have taken the gun and you've studied the gun with all these stories that you know and all these people you meet, literally there is a flow of guns going into Mexico. There's a flow of drugs coming back out. And on both sides, there are people suffering, dying, horrific deaths. And yet we still, as people, as humanity, still we demand coke. We demand this drug, this drug that is fueling it all. And, you know, the likes of the 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 gun lobby in America, the politicians in America are facilitating it somewhat. The banking systems are facilitating the movement of the money. You know, there's a lot of kind of things on the right side of the law that are facilitating the bad things too. And um, I think that's where you've you've moved into the realms of starting to see answers. Maybe. I mean, I I, I, I try. I I, I mean, it, it's. I find it very frustrating in some ways covering this, as I'm sure you do as well. That so I mean, you know, you you cover this when I first arrived in Mexico 20 years ago, and it was all exciting and glamorous, uh, and then you just see so much pain and and, and the stories, you know, like one of the stories I, I have in there, kind of a mother whose son was was taken away at gunpoint um, and disappeared. Um, he was he worked in customs. So maybe there'd been an issue there because he hadn't let somebody's drugs come through or, or who knows what happened. But he was in his girlfriend's house. Guys came in, a bunch of guys came in with guns, took him away and the, and the, and the girlfriend. The mother couldn't find him. She was searching, finding, pressuring the police, couldn't find him. Uh, people told her to back off and then they beat up her other, went and beat up her other, her other son and said, you know, your mother's got to stop looking, stop asking questions. So he left the country and she said, I can't, I can't stop. I've got to find out what happened to my son. I can't, I can't leave this. They um, were on a, on a march. Various mothers of, of people who disappeared were on a march on Mother's Day. And then a car rolled up and a guy came out and gave them a map, like a hand-drawn map, and said, check out this place. They went to the police. The police didn't do anything. So they went there themselves. And it was a field, a cow field next to a neighborhood, next to a residential neighborhood. And they began just digging up bunch of you know a bunch of mothers of lost kids disappeared kids went digging up the earth and started finding bones skulls eventually okay, prosecutors had to come in you know the government had to come in and take over they found more than 250 bodies in this place uh when I talked to her there was after they discovered this and she was still searching uh then Two years later, her son's remains were identified in this mass grave, which is the biggest mass grave found in Mexico in recent history. Another detail about that mass grave is that that backs onto a regular housing estate. So a housing estate, kind of a, a an attempt in Mexico at a middle-class housing estate, a, a kind of an attempt, to, you know, kind of houses with basketball hoops and kiddie bicycles and stuff. And as the bodies were being dug up, the smell of death which is, you know, tragically, I've been around too many places where you smell corpses and bodies now, and they have this kind of really distinct smell that comes out of kind of, of decaying human flesh. And that was coming out on, on this housing estate. So they started saying, you know, we've got to do something and we can't carry on. I mean, again, that, that really kind of brings it home. 
So seeing these kind of tra- seeing this kind of tragedy, you think, well, I can't just cover and, and talk about the glamorous stories about this stuff. I've got to try and we've got to try and talk about the bad stuff, but also look, look for the solutions. Uh, I mean, you know, what what, what what's the you know, what what use is it is us covering all this stuff? So there's the issues of now the guns, and when you start to see not the idea of banning weapons in the US and saying, you know, you've got no right to bear arms, but just saying this basic stuff like, how is it that this guy goes into it? I mean, as well as as the, as the straw, as the universal background checks or the, the, the private sale loophole, you have this issue of straw buying. Where, what it is, is you pay somebody to go and buy a gun and, and you pay them $100, $50 to go and buy a gun because there's not much comeback on this. And people are walking into shops and buying 10 AK-47s and giving them to the cartel. And how is that happening every day? I mean, as we speak, this stuff is happening. And how come that kind of stuff can't be stopped? How come just like blatantly these guns pouring over the border to people who are doing this really horrible stuff is happening? And how come politics cannot fix this? So, you know, he's trying to point out the solutions. Um, you know, also with the drug thing as well. I mean, you know, the drug thing, I feel the debate about drugs has moved on now massively in 20 years. Uh, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, you'd mention how about the idea we've got to look at drug policy reform. People say that's a non-starter. Now we've got marijuana legalized in a bunch of places, but still it's very frustrating. Still we can't, it's very hard to move forward with the real policy. Still you've got in the United States, um, 90% of people who need rehab are not getting rehab, according to the American Medical Association. So still they're not really treating people who have addiction problems in, in, in a way. So so it's, it, it's I mean, I say, I, I mean, I, I, I propose stuff. I, I hope, um, I mean, there's other people, there's good activists out there that, that are looking for good stuff. I think the problem is, or, or some of the problems, that politics itself is, is quite broken. I think internationally, I think in the United States, I think in, in, in England, I think in, in Ireland, um, it's, it's hard to see these real solutions to concrete problems being solved by politics nowadays. And I think a lot of the activists as well, rather than seeing the kind of conc- ideas of, of, of stuff we can change, that kind of idea of here's a problem, let's fix it. It's more about kind of utopian visions of let's all overhaul and recreate the whole of society in, in ways that are not really helping solve these real issues for people. But, I mean, I hope, I mean, there's certainly a window of opportunity right now in the United States and internationally. I mean, there is a window of opportunity to change things right now. I mean, there's a huge opportunity there to legalise cannabis. And certainly here it makes up about 25% of the drug market um, to legitimise that and bring it into the the ordinary economy. Surely, you know, is somewhere, I'd like to think we might see that in our lifetimes. we seem to be moving towards it. But as you say, tightening up some of those gun laws and other issues you've brought up, do you, how do you see Mexico if those gun laws were tightened? What would Mexico look like with, with far less guns spilling in over the US border? I mean, Mexico's got a huge, huge challenge in reducing organised crime. And the guns are part of the equation, but they're not the only part. I mean, for a start, there's so many guns here already now that it would take years, even if you stop that flow of guns or reduce that flow of guns, it would take still take years to kind of you know, try and move on. Uh, we have 
you know, horrific problems with corruption. Uh, like in terms of, you know, you saw recently the case of a general who in the United States was was accused of drug trafficking and then hit over the border and then charges were dropped. Uh, a public security secretary who was the kind of one of the real architects of the drug war here is currently in prison in the United States on drug trafficking charges. So you've got huge problems there to deal with. And you've got these huge issues with the young people in these neighbourhoods who get recruited by the cartels. But if, you know, you have to look at a comprehensive solution and, and, and reducing the flow of guns is part of that. Over time, it can make a huge difference. And it's not only, and people say, well, they get guns from anywhere, but it's about pushing the prices up of how much they would have to pay for guns. And, you know, one thing is like saying, well, they're going to find some kind of firepower from everywhere. I mean, and maybe you could say, well, in Ireland, people are going to find guns. But you haven't got a situation in Ireland where every, you know, mad criminal in, in Ireland has got an AK-47. And imagine what Ireland would look like if that was the case. Some of these people who are like out of control, um, you know, young, blood-hungry criminals all had AK-47s, RPGs, grenades, or everything they wanted. You know, imagine what that would look like. And then you see this filtering down into all levels. So that the fact that you have such an abundance of guns. Now, one thing they do, which I look at as well in the book, is in is how guns filter down to, to children, basically. I mean, young teenagers. So you have the cartel guys using guns, and then they use a gun in a bunch of crimes, and it becomes you know, a very bit of a hot weapon because they you know, can be traced to like some high-profile murders. You know, maybe, maybe they use it to kill a politician, maybe they use it to kill a police, you know, high-level police police guy, other kind of high-profile murders. So they'll get rid of the gun on the street and they'll sell it real cheap. They'll sell the gun for like $100 because it's a burned, they call it a burned gun. So then you know, they'll sell that to some teenage gang members get these guns. Um, so... This guy, uh, well, actually a rapper from Ciudad Juarez, who I've known for some time, was talking about this and how, you know, they'd he they buy these cheap guns when they were young teenagers. And then there'd be guns around the school. They're like some kid come, you know, their class comes in with a gun to show off that he's got. So then they, they like hold him down, give him a headlock and take the gun off him. Um, and that kind of stuff happening. And then you get these young kids shooting, carrying out multiple murders, um, a bunch of young, I mean, child soldiers, you can call them. There's, a, you know, another kid I look at, Juan, his nickname was Juan Pistolas, you know, Juan Pistol. Um, and they were, he became famous. There was like songs about him floating around in the street, this guy, Juan Pistol, you know, like, you know, and then and then he was, he had his head blown off by the military when he was 16. He was recruited when he was like 13. So what that effect means as well. So, so if you really got to, you know, tighten the, the flow of guns, that's a beginning of change. Um, and then the other stuff, I mean, you know, Mexico's got to work hard. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a very, very challenging situation. But how can you even begin, you know, how can the, no, another, another big issue here is the 50 caliber rifles. So these are the rifles, like the Browning, Barrett type rifles, which fire 50 caliber bullets. So these are bullets which are the size of Coca-Cola bottles, size of small knives which are used in the military for like piercing through armor. So you could pierce through an armored carrier, pierce through a, you know, you know a lot of uh, vehicles. And they buy these in the United States in shops. $10,000 plus, bring them down. And they'll use these to fire on military and police convoys. And this, this is very documented. There's a, 
in this uprising uh, in Culiacan in 2019, which is a crazy story, when they rose up to free the son of El Chapo. There's video of them firing with his 50 cals and one of them firing at a soldier and literally blows his leg apart. So when you have the police and the military facing that kind of firepower, I mean, I've got a lot of criticism for the police and the military here and, and everyone does, but when you've got to think about when in their shoes, when you go out and you're facing that kind of firepower, how can you begin to face that? Imagine if police in, again, in, in the United States and Europe were getting blown apart by 50 cals and how they're going to deal with that situation. So to even begin to say, how can the police and military get on top of this? How can you begin to establish, you know, like the power thing and, and really um, have that working? then you've got to try and reduce this flow of guns. It's got to be part of the solution. Well, I have to say, Owen, having having read the book, and I do think that it's an education for anybody who picks it up, and education really is another step of the way for us to get somewhere with this problem 50 years on from Nixon's failed war on drugs. Um, you know, I think that you're doing a great job telling us all these stories and I suppose giving us the bigger issue with it. But from having read your book, somehow I think Mexico is criticised as being a bit of a mad place. I think the USA have an awful lot to answer for, that they're selling the likes of that stuff. Um, Johan Grillo, thank you very much for your time today. Great to be here. Thank you, Nicola. From sundayworld.com, this is Crime World, produced by Ian Mullaney. Available online and on all podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, check out our Facebook page, Crime World with Nicola Talent. <laughs>